welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Welcome to the future, Pete A. Oh, did I miss the cool say yes part? Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 307, Unification 3 comes to you now via leaky fresher head and just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at the episode pete indeed this news uh taking us from this galaxy to another and then back again yes matt over on the patreon on monday we will be bringing you our impressions of the lego star wars holiday special Certainly, uh, that'll be an exciting rumination there. Uh, a bit delayed by this, the start, the formal start of the holiday season, at least with American Thanksgiving, uh, just a couple of days in our rearview mirror, or its 24th slash 23rd slash 32nd uh, century equivalent. But super excited to share that with everybody. With that, Pete, let's head into our mission briefing. Beneath Discovery's Federation logo in the shuttle bay, Burnham records a supplemental log about how she thought she could reintegrate with the ship and crew after a year apart. But as she eyes books, ship, the Eon Eagle or the Centennial Bird, whichever you choose, she acknowledges she's become someone new, though she's still committed to the Federation and her friends. She beams onto the ship to seek solace in Book's arms as she talks about the distance between herself and everything she's ever known. She won't be at peace until she can solve the burn, but she doesn't know if she can do it aboard Discovery. Beat some time passes by uh, in the interim. I think perhaps there was a, a sensual moment or two. Uh, but time having gone by, Book is looking to run. It's with a bit of a chuckle that he notes that she's looking to only solve the biggest cosmic puzzle of all time, that of the burn. Uh, and he throws a bit of shade to her. She's got a messianic complex. Pete, it's almost like he doesn't know that she is the series lead in a uh, modern, you know, big budget drama here. Um, and though she says, no, essentially, you've got one too because you save animals that are being abused. Uh, I think the message is clear that she, her de facto position here is to save the galaxy, whereas he is doing a very good job saving some of those, uh, some of those creatures and getting them to safe homes. But he acknowledges that his presence here in the shuttle bay, not a long-term situation. Where could they go? space <laughs> uh but almost geez. the way he said space it, it, i felt like it was a little evocative of the shatner you know space the final frontier oh, just didn't I, have the I final frontier part. thought for a moment that that maybe there was going to be you know that joke best left uh, unsaid here and full credit to kirsten buyer and you know uh matt and i were at uh star trek new york 2016 right I believe so, yeah. Okay. Uh, September 2016, where they had 
a the first ever discovery panel it was uh kirsten Beyer and it was nicholas meyer okay and uh that she has now risen to the level where she's able to produce this episode um after being the voice of reason in the room back then confronted by somebody at a microphone, you know, a, a fan running up and saying, you know, not, not a question, but please don't screw this up. And then, Oh, Hey, uh, four years from now, uh, a little more than four years from now, I'm a, I'm a drop a unification three on you. Okay. She's successfully, uh, you know, risen to the level that, uh, we hoped we are with her in good hands whether this episode has been good or great i think the subject of some debate as uh, as things unfold here but the story unfolds into the science lab where tilly and burnham essentially talk out the last episode uh, and burnham's place is continued to be pondered uh, as for the burn the black box from pete legitimately Kind of a little choked up here. USS Yelchin, mm -hmm. good job show. Just acknowledging the contributions and the loss of uh, Antonin Yelchin there, and just a fitting, a fitting little moment. It doesn't linger here, but the moment here that now he's been he's been memorialized in in another way. So so fitting. It is, and it, it's handled in the most reverent and and proper way. Uh, that we'll never see the the Chekhov actor again. It remains to be seen whether those films will even continue the fits and starts that they've had. But uh, to to get that call out there, I, I think means a lot, not just for the family of uh, that deceased actor, but obviously for us as the viewers. Um, but they've analyzed all but the one black box, which story clock computer still analyzing that within the scene okay uh that the uss yelchin and the uss gavnar were a thousand light years apart yet there was one one millionth of a microsecond difference between the detonations and uh as tilly and burnham are waiting for that it's the catch-up of hey Burnham, you left me in a really bad spot with Saru, with the Admiral. Okay, you've been demoted. All right, let's let's talk about what this means for us and what this means for the galaxy. And it's it's an effective expositional catch up on the logistical and emotional level. We also get something that frankly I missed on the first viewing, the notion that yes this third black box is now being analyzed, but the three black boxes will only triangulate a two-dimensional point. Mm -hmm. So even once this, you know, third point in the triangle is given, uh, Tilly says there's, it would still take several lifetimes to search all the potential spots that that could be. Um, so Pete, we got some, some good old fashioned real world math here in our Star Trek. Um, Ultimately, though, there is the triangulation and there is this further confirmation of the time delay. But, Pete, that's not all we get in this scene. Yes. Uh, the introduction of an experiment named SB-19, and you better believe all Pete 
has a theory as to what it means uh, for later on. But uh, the introduction there, Burnham flagged it in the Federation databases, um, but there is no information from it, which Tilly says either they uh, didn't record anything or it wasn't made public. Maybe the Admiral has access, but ding dong, the Giacconi uh, results are in, Matt. Would you like to hear them? I would, please. <laughs> they lost contact uh, seven one millionths of a microsecond after the Yelchin. So beep, boop, beep. There's the triangle, Admiral. Indeed, and when they take that to the Admiral, he is coldly impressed. Burnham talks up the potential contributions of the SB-19 data, but Vance says it's a no-go. Why? It's Navarre. Duh. He, he doesn't have the duh. Although, Pete, I would argue his acting does. Oh, right. You guys don't know that name. You might know it by the other name, the old name, Vulcan, the planet. You know, the ones that are currently shared with Romulans. Oh, Right, you also might not know that the Romulans and the Vulcans are two tribes of the same species. I love how the exposition here just fast forwards through that because we know Saru and Burnham need to know that, but we don't need a lengthy, you know, anything to explain it, just quick explain it. Um, and of course, these two tribes were unified by Spock. Uh, however, unification overall is less so since uh, Navarre's relationship with the Federation became fraught and indeed they pulled out they did on the planet of navarre pulled out 100 years ago yeah and i think what's a delicate line that they were able to walk here and my notes even reflect it saru reminds the audience the romulans were considered enemies in their time why because remember discovery began prior to the original series timeline so we've not yet run into the romulans in terms of story uh they had never had any dealings discovery certainly with the romulans that we've been privy to uh so you know for the casual viewer oh i know romulans star trek but more of a next generation nemesis so, and again, this is why Bayer is the perfect person to write this episode in, in terms of laying out this information. Um, coming off the title card, Matt, uh, Burnham ponders why the Vulcans left the Federation in a continuation of the previous scene, but Vance reveals it was the Romulans who wanted to stay. And that before the burn, the Federation was running out of dilithium and all member planets were ordered to put their best scientists on a solution. Navarre's contribution was SB-19, which Vance brings up a holograph of. And uh, it was a system to transport starships thousands of light years in an instant. Kind of looks like a wormhole. Um, but... The scientists of Navarre thought it was too dangerous. They asked permission to stop it, even though it was the most promising alternative to dilithium. So what ultimately happened, and hence what led to Navarre leaving the Federation, is that 
um, they think the Federation forced them to cause the burn. So, Pete, just to recap here, SB19 was the was was part of a science program where scientists across the everywhere were working to come up with the best solution that would help everybody. This must have been a surreal moment uh, months and months after this was shot, as this was being edited and special effects and music done uh, in, in a post-COVID world, COVID-19. You know, there's no way that this is a wink and a nod. This is not like other aspects of this episode later on where you say, and I don't mean to fast forward overly, but you say the three representatives from Navarre, it's kind of sort of, you know, left of center, right of center and center. Oh, it's a, it's the age old political debate that feels so modern uh, as we record this today or a year ago or five years, you know, whatever it is, this in particular, this notion of a worldwide slash galaxy wide thing that required scientists to try different solutions for just must have been bizarre to look back and realize oh my goodness this sounds like COVID-19 this sounds like the search for the vaccine uh hopefully SB19 and COVID-19 vaccine science programs hopefully both of them do not have some sort of disastrous outcome on top of the existing disaster I mean there's a month left in 2020 Matt (laughs) there's still time uh Navar, Navardis, one of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, the thing I put down in, in thinking it over in my notes, I mean, naming, renaming Vulcan Namoy would have been a little too much. And again, I, I think what this episode wisely does is show restraint at every possible moment and that's even with the tilly promotion which you can go back and listen to me predicting last week with no spoiler pete knowledge matt i will tell you that in in earnestness um that you know to to bridge these gaps yet do it in a way that is authentic and earned as opposed to let's call the the planet Nimoy. Let's make Tilly first officer because first officer. No, they they move in a rational way, and and Bayer does a elegant job of doing it. Also, Navarre as a word on the Star Trek periphery uh, has been around, I think, since the late six no late sixties, early seventies, somewhere in there. Just in terms of kind of fan fiction and things like that and it kind of over the years has been elevated more and more navarre kind of referring to the duality of things uh two opposites existing at the same time that sort of thing uh and of course it even made its way to the name of a ship in uh, a vulcan ship in enterprise um so the deep cut there as well certainly this scene hammering home kind of a a um chain of custody if you will uh, yes, SB19 was a Vulcan uh, program, and yes, there is the Vulcan uh, internal suspicion that this was the cause of the burn. However, the Vulcans, in a very Vulcan way, don't necessarily take responsibility. They think that SB19 caused the burn, and the Federation made them work on SB19. Therefore, logically, it is the Federation's fault, not the Vulcans' fault. Um, 
But there is this hope that Burnham, of all people, can get them to listen, not just based on the value of her argument. But Pete, we get a half a smile from the the ever-tired, the ever-weary Vance. Perhaps Spock's sister is the only person who can open the door. Uh, there's just literally a couple of people who disagree. That's Saru and Burnham, you know, on account of her uh, recent resume changes and all that. But Vance says, too bad. Tell them Michael Burnham is coming. Yeah, he orders that they find a way despite Saru the formality that he had to demote her and the internal conflict that Burnham faces right now. Do I stay or do I go? As she walks the corridors of discovery, Burnham reflects on her final advice to her younger half brother. We see uh, him beam out at the, uh, the battle of Zahia, the last time she ever saw him. Uh, we see a flashback to their shared childhood, uh, her learning the Vulcan salute from him uh, in her quarters, which is also Tilly's quarters still, Matt, point number two for Pete. But anyway, uh, she and Book view a holographic archive of Ambassador Spock from Stardate 45825 retrieved from the personal files of Admiral Jean-Luc Picard, you know, the ones that aired over WPIX in New York. Um, yes, I will admit later on, dialogue suggests, dialogue confirms that Burnham and Tilly still share quarters. I, I think that that is not supported by the set decoration. Um, and that, and sure, that, sure, go um, ahead, qualify it. Well, no, I think that, yes, it was written, therefore it is canonical, but I don't think Can we think have that absolute that's... candor for a second? Pete, there will be much absolute <laughs> candor for this episode because... You can't handle uh, the absolute candor. You, you, you flew high on this episode, me less so, and it was interesting to see, uh, to see that unfold uh, amongst people on Twitter as well. Um, so yes, absolute candor, certainly throughout the recap and throughout our discussion here, uh, I just, I, I stand by what the red I alert. I, I did not order the red alert, but I think that, I think that set decoration decisions were made to suggest that Tilly had moved out and then dialogue said otherwise. And there was no way to like, they weren't going to go back and or perhaps they did go back and put Tilly stuff on the side of the room and whatnot, but it certainly is not lingered on in this episode. But Pete, I will concede that under the rules of Star Trek, uh, when something is said clearly and is not a goof, uh, and here it is not a goof, it is, you know, it is all but said that they still share a room, then it is what it is. Um, but Pete, I digress here. We have the words from Spock in Unification 2, uh, him talking about how closed minds have kept these two worlds apart for centuries and the union will be achieved even if it takes further centuries. Uh, so certainly a... A great moment there, Pete. I would perhaps argue that the invocation of Leonard Nimoy is a, an emotional attempt to connect with the audience and perhaps papering over some weaker parts of the episode. Uh, there is my absolute candor. Uh, but that particular scene concludes with Book noting that this family uh, has chronic overachievers. 
It does. It does. And he wonders if maybe she's just the person to get Navarre to share the data. Saru meets with Tilly in the ready room and asks her to serve as acting first officer until he finds a permanent replacement. Like it won't be her, though, right? Eh, I mean, let me this way, Pete. I have some internal world of Star Trek reservations. Hey, so does Tilly. She herself argues against it for things like she lacks the proper training, lacks the proper rank. Maybe she's just being chosen because she's compliant, which Pete, within the world of Star Trek, I think is maybe the most important. Saru has now been burned multiple times by First Officer Michael Burnham, and I think that he's placing a premium on somebody who can indeed be the appropriate First Officer and and conform to his vision and all that. Exterior of Star Trek... I have no complaint. I get it. Um, Mary Wiseman is a, you know, a, a named cast member. She's not even featured cast. You know, we get Wilson Cruz in and out. We get David Ajala in and out. She's one of the, the main cast of characters. I get that for that reason alone to keep her in the mix, to keep her away from, as we saw a couple episodes ago, uh, story doesn't know what to do with her, but give her the scene where she talks to the cat. Those are all valid reasons for the character to get more screen time. Um, But I'm with Team Tilly here that maybe it's a wacky decision. And uh, Pete, it's one that I will just have to live by. The brilliance of Byers' script is that it bulwarks itself against the complaints that we ourselves as Trek fans would have. Oh, (laughs) later on in... The trial. Um, you're you're using your brother as uh, an emotional argument. Check here. The character herself saying you're doing this because I'm compliant. That you're you're soft pedaling this. No, I'm I'm not. You're you're getting this because you're a person who can get others to to rise up. And I really really appreciate that again instead of the low-hanging fruit of who else is it gonna be (laughs) i can't be burnham it can't be you know third canadian regular from the right and again we love our bridge crew but they're they're just not developed to the point yet i mean detmer is emotionally compromised at this point to throw the, the second most responsibility um, on top of taking her away of the comfortability of being the pilot right now would be way too much. You're not going to do it with Stamets, although I would argue he was the second leading candidate. Um, Culber is number two in sick bay. He can't be first officer. Um, although by that logic, Tilly is is less deserving, but I, I think really, really proofed itself against the real world concerns, as as you mentioned, uh, that that intrude. And uh, I would just add re- regarding Culver. I mean, I think that it is that this is probably true in in the real world of uh, the military and medicine, but certainly in Star Trek, when you go for that 
when you go for that, you know, that medical major at the academy or, or whatever, I don't know, do you show up at the academy with a, you know, with a medical degree or do you do it kind of postgraduate? But once you, once you're on the doctor path, you know, you're going to graduate the academy, lieutenant junior grade, yeah, lieutenant junior grade, and you're going to max out a commander. Maybe from there you have some sort of, you know, medical captaincy. I mean, I know we saw that in the alternate future with, with Crusher and whatnot, but you, you're clearly not ever going to sniff a command position as a doctor. It's just not that you know, you're, you're committed to medicine. That's just the way it is. Um, but, but yeah, again, I understand why for dramatic purposes, Tilly gets the nod and kudos to the show for exploring why kind of militarily or, or organizationally why perhaps she's not suited. Saru uh, then on the bridge uh, has everybody get ready to jump to Navarre. Um, Bryce says that uh, they are expecting discovery and a uh, great moment here where Saru tells the crew that Navarre has not visited, uh, has not been visited by a Federation ship in almost a century and that he wants to remind Navarre who they are and how important Navarre is to them. Um, and with the black alert here, we get Stamet, Stamets using the new Spore Drive interface for the very first time. I thought it curious as he put his hands in the goo there for the first time where it counts, where he's making a jump. It was kind of a knowing smile that crossed his face there. Yes, that had caught my eye as well. And I think there's a bunch of options. Maybe one is, ooh, it really does connect the way I thought it was. Uh, perhaps a more pedestrian uh, explanation might be he's got to show some kind of emotion here, like they've cut to, and he's ready to go. So you make the acting choice of, ooh, this is cool, rock and roll time, you know, something like that, that, that that's not going to be supported necessarily by dialogue. Um, but after that jump, and of course we see the, the orbiting satellites, the security satellites, whatever whatever they are, uh, kind of come alive and point towards the ship. Uh, it's the president of Vulcan on the holophone. Uh, Pete, shades of, uh, I believe there was a hollow transmitter on the Defiant at some point in Deep Space Nine where no fancy stuff, just have the person stand there and pretend that it's all holographic. Uh, so we get that here. Uh, the president of Vulcan is Tarina, who is impressed by their unique propulsion system. Uh, indeed, they just seem to suddenly appear. So there's a little bit of emotionless, emotional finger wagging here, which is always such a fine line for an actor playing a Vulcan that they have to follow where there's got to be, there's got to be sass and indignation in this moment while showing neither of those, at least on the surface. Did you catch that they both, exited the Federation Starfleet distortion field to jump away when before they had done it in the presence of every ship inside there. And then it was, wait, they have an experimental propulsion system. No one's ever seen before that can take them anywhere at any time. Huh? It's weird. Cause that ship disappeared in front of all of us the other day, but yeah, go on Admiral. Well, I would explain. I think there's two ways to explain that. One, that that point from from last week's episode and the, the jump from a couple weeks ago. One is it could just be a goof, and if it's a goof, it's a goof. The other could be we know that 
we know that oftentimes Starfleet ships are away from headquarters for long stretches of time. Um, so to my mind, it was like maybe the captains in that in that round table, the captains who were so surprised, just weren't there to see the ship disappear. And I'll further add to that, maybe ships suddenly disappear all the time, like you know, similar to that, maybe not with the spore drive, you know, twisty electricity, but through whatever means of the future, maybe that visual thing is not that big a deal. Um, but I would agree overall, Pete, it feels like it's a goof, uh, particularly in this episode, where, as you say, they leave the distortion field, then in in open space, then take the jump. And I'm completely willing to chalk it up as such. There's very little way that, hey, we're going to we're going to film uh, this this captain's round table and that they're going to know that the effect shot which may be written but not yet filmed will happen within the the Starfleet distortion field that it'll jump and no captain there would have been in space dock at the time nor talked to any other captains hey steve did you notice that that ship was there and then gone you know the 930 year old one that that was weird right oh i'll bring it up at the captain's round table I, I get maybe it. the show is hiding some mistakes in the the line in this episode, uh, you know, which is going to be coming up in a little bit that knowledge of the full nature of discovery is not known across the fleet. So maybe Steve has been told, don't talk about what you saw to your other captains. It's true. Uh, eyes only. Yes, it was within HQ, but there's only so many ships there and, and whatnot. So so shush up, Steve, or else, <laughs> you know, back to back to cleaning the holodeck for you. Oh, Captain Steve. And then, so the the uh, detached nacelles connect for the jump. Ooh, I did not catch that. Yeah, I, which when you did not note it, I, I know what a, what a attention to detail you have for the engineering aspect. So they reconnect for the jump. It's not apparent, at least on the effects shot, when they come back in that they suddenly, because uh, it's a faraway shot that they detach again. But I think it's interesting nonetheless, and only makes sense. Like, okay, you can have separate pieces flying together um, when, you know, you're not at extraordinary velocity velocities, but then of course, to, uh, to do the jump, they've got to do that. Uh, but geek stuff aside, Matt, and yes, you were referring to the deep space nine Jean Valjean, episodes with the uh section no it wasn't section 31 it was the maquis trader who would come on eddington right and have those monologues with the holographic projector on the bridge but not a real person um so yes there's that but immediately tarina you know much like the is gonna do in a little bit right to the jugular you're not getting sb19 it's great that you're related uh you know by adoption to spock and to sarek and it's an honor and all but uh no sb19 for you i'll also mention and i i i really hate to be overly you know nitpicky here but kirsten Beyer. And all have made the decision in this episode, particularly in this particular point of the episode, 
we're just going to sidestep the whole history never recorded Michael Burnham and the connection and whatnot. Like, none of that confusion of, but wait, I have searched. We know all about Ambassador Spock and Ambassador Sarek and Amanda. And, and it's it's okay that they sidestep that. I just want to point out, uh, again, perhaps with me having a bit less uh, reverence to um, to this episode than you, uh, just the notion that they're just not going to go there in this episode. Um, but um, as you say, Pete, uh, SB19 data off limits. It's a great cultural and social debate in this fragile, unified world. And if you keep asking, you're going to have to get, get, I say, says Tarina. <laughs> yeah, that any theory she has could tear open old wounds here. So permission denied Burnham because she's Burnham and the, the rogue spirit is the, the through line here uh, at, at whatever cost to get things done. The, the human version, if you will, of her half brother Spock, you know, that uh, the needs of the many um, wants to invoke the old ways and she respectfully of course as a graduate of the vulcan science academy invokes to call in ket uh and the look out of doug jones as saru here does everything to sell it like if if saru would just say one time i want the clicky noise first and then i wanted to go oh damn it here we go again well i think that in that in that moment it's a good reminder of the um the different forces within kind of the the conceit of the show uh that have led to the logical outgrowth of burnham not being uh number one and not being captain which is because she is the star of the show because she is the one to be proposing these radical uh choices as one often does as the hero you know let's let, let's storm the castle let's you know do whatever it is let's come up with the crazy james bond plan that's a one in a million you know we'll, we'll but we'll win every time that sort of thing um she does not fit into the traditional organization of a starship in terms of captain number one and all of that so just as uh, we've discussed at other points how um it's taken a while for some characters or another to really find their best place within the show. Uh, Mirror Giorgio coming to mind, for example. Here, too, it's like, her as the bomb-throwing, wait, there's no time to discuss this. We're not going to mute comms, you know, do the Picard mute comms and turn around and say, I need, I need options, everyone, while the person's there on hold looking at your back. Um, instead, it's just, she's going to go for it to the shock of all. And, and that's, you know, so part and parcel with her character. Yeah, it's within who she is. So again, authentic to character and to story. So uh, Tarina says she'll convene the quorum with resignation, essentially. Um, and then Burnham explains that this ritual dates back to Sorak. It's a philosophical process designed to unearth deep truths that led to early Vulcan scientific advancement and that once invoked Matt, it cannot be denied. So story purposes. 
Um, Saru says they've given Navarre no choice, but Burnham says it's the only way they're going to have a chance at that data. So she will have to rigorously defend her hypothesis before the Science Institute. But take us to the walkie transporter room. Yes, uh, we have the Quorum of Three arriving with Tarina. Uh, in a bit, the Quorum of Three will be named, uh, though not right now. Um, Tarina declines a tour of the ship because she wants to head right to the Takalan Ket. Uh, of course, Saru is going to take her on a less than direct path in a little bit. Pete, it's a path that's just long enough for them to have the conversation uh, of of their desired length. It's like every turbo lift scene ever. The journey takes just as long until the conversation ends. Um, those four off the transporter pad, uh, Pete, I will, I will turn a blind eye to the fact that they're using transporter pad, even though there's personal transporters. Probably the convention still exists, just as you have a front door. You wouldn't beam inside the house; you'd beam to the front door. Probably the oh, but transporter... wait, Matt. A a traditional Romulan home has a false front door. Uh, that is true as well. Bottom line being, I get that they need to beam in somewhere, and the transporter room is as good a place as any. Uh, particularly since we want to have walk and talk space and private space and things of that sort. Uh, oh, by the way, says Tarina on the way out, you're going to get an advocate, uh, a sister of the Koat Malat, uh, who shares, of course, absolute candor. Nothing but. Hey, honesty. I saw them on Picard. That uh, Pete, it's all hadn't streamed, it, but when this episode was being uh, filmed, <laughs> somehow Kirsten Beyer, as one of the co-creators of Star Trek Picard, um, has has brought them back here. It's all it's it's all brought Rom- them back to the future, Matt. Romulo connected um <laughs> reference is also made dramatic pause that this particular sister from the Quat Malat has a particular interest in Michael Burnham and Michael Burnham in turn may have a particular interest uh, in her uh before Torino leaves we get the uh the apology from Burnham for forcing the hand of Torina um but Torina saying no no Burnham you are technically a citizen of Navarre so this is all within uh, the, the rules of society. Uh, and with that, the hooded sister arrives. Dramatic pause, dramatic pause. Pete, as though the show had been setting up the search for mom. Will I search for mom again? Maybe I will search for mom. What about mom? Pete, the hood comes off, and it's mom. There was a moment where I thought maybe, just maybe, Denise Crosby was going to come across the transporter. Um the the mom thing works it shouldn't they make it to work particularly because the strength with which uh gabrielle burnham is written and calls her daughter out through the use of absolute candor during the the ritual trial so again what what on paper seems like uh, you're going to reintroduce the mom here works. I mean, ultimately this is an episode and this is a soft criticism of the writing, but this is an episode that has three things that should not be, but ultimately are because the story says so. And I'm not saying that, that that they're unconvincing, that the story is unconvincing at how, in how it, forces these three things but i think it still is a bit of a square peg in a round hole 
the Tilly promotion issue, uh, Mom as this now fully fledged uh, Kualat Malat member, um, despite what I think we can assume is, you know, pick a single digit number. It's that many years that she has been training. You know, it's it's not an entire lifetime. Uh, And then the whole notion that really nobody wants to share the SB19 data, but at the end, Torino is going to overrule everybody and share the SB19 data. I get that every time there's a conflict in drama, that one outcome is not the one that our hero wants or one is, or or an outcome is not what the the audience necessarily would want. And it happens all the time that, that the, the torpedo goes in and the death star explodes and so forth. But Again, I feel like I feel like these are all things that are ninety percent earned, and uh, and to me, it's just a couple points off the episode in toto. The Saru Tarina non tour walk and talk um, that ultimately heads to Matt the um, the set that I'm calling dialogue window for this season. Oh, um, you mean the window where people go and talk? Got it. Dialogue window. Yeah. <laughs> Interior. Dialogue window. Saru and Tarina talk about um, that uh, it's not even widely known, as you mentioned before, in Starfleet that Discovery has returned um, and that it could be polarizing with the temporal accords. Um, but there was no other way for. Um, them to know for the Navarans to be able to explain the presence of Spock's sister after 931 years. And uh, interesting here, and I think this Saru-Tarina relationship bears watching, not just in this episode. You know, he is a captain of this very important now starship from the past to the future, and she as a founding world of the Federation now since withdrawn. Um, She asks what he thinks of this future. Uh, He says that he's troubled that uh, Starfleet is diminished, but you know, that those that remain seem committed to its core values. And she notes that he seems certain of that, though he says he's seen it in member and non-member worlds alike. All she does is nod quietly. So there's a lot more going on beneath the surface here. Maybe, Pete, someone in the fanfic community will write the uh, Tarina Ponfar Saru story that can be that can be sizzling. Uh, but Pete, that's a story. Doing for... the ear thing around his lobes could result in the 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 tines coming out could be painful a better fit probably with a with a klingon than with a with a vulcan well uh, pete love knows no bounds nor does the call of ponfar i suppose um ultimately there is mention of saru's view of the future alas though the federation is reduced it remains committed to core values perhaps this visit will mend relationships uh we have tarina saying it'll take more than one visit and of course, we have discussion later on where she liked to keep the conversation going. So hope for uh, dialogue between worlds and perhaps, I don't know, something sizzling between the characters. But speaking of relationships, we get some updates from Mom, who jumped back 
not to, to Terralisium, but to Esau IV, uh, in bad shape. Colonist there had her healed by the Qualatmalat, which again, I think there's your kind of tick, tack, toe, question mark. Like, oh, that explains it. It both explains it because the story said so, but colonists on Esau IV normally take people to the Qualatmalat who then say, hey, do you want to join us? And, you know, it, it's one of those things where... It, it it is a story bridge. Let's not jump up and down on it while we're in the middle, lest it lest it break apart. Uh, she, mom, Gabrielle, is better, but notes that her daughter is lost. Mom now accepts wherever whoa, she is whoa, whoa, in the moment. Whoa. The the absolutist of candor would be lost. She she made it gentle. She said between places. Yeah, but she means she's settling into the absolute candor here it's kind of vague candor there um mom giving the advice there to or at least for in mom's case except where you're at even if it's painful um but pete can burnham convince the quorum you know all open-minded folks well they use facts and logic matt of of course she can um but she admits she is terrified of the decolon cat um, she's worried she won't be able to convince them. And the, again, the Kawat Malat mythology that the sisters bind themselves to lost causes. And we get, a, it's interesting on the editing here, the montage back to the transporter room of these three judges that Naraj, the Romulan elder, he longs for greater self-governance. We have Bakir, the young leader of a sect of Vulcan purists. And then we have Shira, who is a spokesperson for the Romulo Vulcans trying to forge a new path. Um, so Burnham says she's going to use logic to appeal to Vakir and uh, Gabrielle as her advocate here. What what the old Vulcans knew, Matt, as a uh, chalcit, um, says that she's going in there with blind spots. And back to uh, Saru and Tarina, where she continues to explain here the other issues that led to the Federation and Navarre uh, separating, the scarcity of the lithium, the sheer size of the Federation, Matt. It ignored the needs of the few. It's almost like the Federation was too big to fail. And uh, that it forced um, the, uh, the confrontation with the uh Romulans to to look at what had happened there even though ironically it was the Romulans who did not want to leave the Federation so what Navarre did to move forward they let go of maxims and proverbs Matt uh and Saru definitely identifies with this he says that the greatest lessons come when you pay a heavy price and both agree that the Federation paid dearly. 
The Takal Nket begins, and Burnham notes that the purpose is the finding of truth. Uh, she's going to state the facts. Pete, she's gearing up here for a fantastic opening argument, but Vakir interrupts. No, no, we've seen the data. It's not good enough. We would hold this uh, this tribunal uh, just as a courtesy to Spock, but basically we're done here, right? Uh, Burnham instead argues that her data is clean. Uh, they've accounted for all the variances that might have led to the apparent uh, shift in those uh, microseconds. Still, she's told that the SB19 data is uh, is of no use to her and off limits. We see quickly some infighting. Naraj wants to share. Shira is unconvinced about Burnham's motives. Um, mention of Rom Romulo Vulcan infighting is referenced uh, as well. So just this notion that the planet still is one in tenuous uh, turmoil. Uh, it's been said earlier, but here there's a bit more evidence. Ultimately, Vakir is unconvinced as to the, the need for any of this. With that typical icy Vulcan arrogance, uh, he calls to end the quorum. But with Naraj voting no and uh, Shira abstaining, there's no consensus. Three different people, three different truths. That's right, Pete. We have the center, the left, and the right, all unable to decide on what's best. And mom notes that they should pause. Pete, which is perfect timing, A, if you want to take a commercial break, which <laughs> luckily I was not taxed with. But also if you just need an end to the talkie scene to focus on your B story. Can we do that, Pete, during this pause? Let's go to engineering, Matt, where Krabby Stamets is being Krabby Stamets until Tilly pulls him into the spore cube, which he immediately knows something's wrong and uh, just blurts out, she does, that uh, Saru has asked her to be acting first officer. Uh, wait, you're going to be my superior officer, which he says is Deeply, deeply weird, <laughs> almost disturbing, before Awoshikin uh, interrupts him to carry through the tension with Detmer, apparently not even speaking to him at this point, though they made up about uh, his recalibrations, but he'll be ready to jump. Uh, we return to Mom and Burnham outside the mess hall. I mean, completely unique uh you know, uh, arbitration chamber. Um, but they are, they're having a sidebar. Vakir is not being open-minded. Um, Burnham is reminded, uh, by mom that as Kualat Malat, uh, she's an advocate for absolute truth. Uh, and mom says that Burnham is not being honest with herself. We go back into the session where Burnham reiterates that the data may show that the Burnham was, that the burn was not caused by you said it you, you said it the burnham matt you got to put a a starfleet non-currency nickel in the uh in the in the burnham jar yeah yeah I, I, we'll discuss in theories pete how i think that may be the possibility of this being directly related to burnham and certainly directly related to mom maybe that's that's fading but uh, pete much like us being sure about the theory, we cannot be sure about the uh, solid notion that uh, that the burn was not caused by SB19. Burnham can't be sure either. Burnham asks with humility for help. Um, and then she's just very plainly told by Vakir that though she sees her data one way, 
the reading of the SB19 data that they, that uh, those on Navarre have shows the burn started in Navarre. So why does trust not run both ways? And again, full credit to the writer here, where on paper it would sound silly. Now mom will attack daughter in full public view. But given what she's become as a character, as Kawat Malat, helping to poke the holes in her argument here to get her to center herself to both figure out a way through this situation and to figure out who she is and that she shouldn't leave this crew at a moment of crossroads again elegantly done yes this notion that burnham demands trust but acts cynically the same burnham who mutinied against her captain leading to the captain's death got relieved as first officer only a couple of days ago uh does she not follow orders does she not question her place on discovery why should anyone trust her or the federation uh, and this, Pete, as you mentioned, leads to this centering of Burnham's argument. Yes, mom is speaking the truth. Burnham is not Vulcan. She is governed by emotion. Um, though, uh, or, or indeed mom saying that that uh, Burnham uh, insinuates herself into situations where she should not be. Maybe she's even being used by the Federation, which on the one hand we know is not the truth, but I think there's a quick opening the door of suspicion there that perhaps is meant to stick with us. Maybe especially if the show is trying to set up some sort of uh, dark Federation spies in the 32nd century section 31 show in the future. I don't know, but Pete, what are your thoughts here? Is Burnham uh, working uh, blindly for the Federation? Can Burnham restate her purpose here? Well, the bringing up of her humanity, ironically by a human Kawat Malat gets at that, the the subject of her possible manipulation at the hands of the Federation, something that Tarina already voiced the possibility of. So two check marks in that column to be sure. Um, So what ultimately happens as we're headed there is the squabble amongst the Vulcan judges here that Naraj will release the data if the Vulcans won't. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold your hold your horses there, uh, Romulans, that you're not going to do that. And then the infighting that it's Shira who's who's in the middle. Shira who says, this is not the way, Matt. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. When when this is the way, clearly this is the way. Um, and, uh, ultimately the, the subject of Spock here, um, that he was the one who left the Federation behind, but Burnham's insistence that that doesn't mean that you don't love something, nor does it mean that you can't return to it someday. Although from what we understand, Spock never did, um, and then we have the uh, adding of uh, Navarre's piece to this potential cost of the burn. It's all too much. It leads Burnham. Matt, how do you how do you win a no win scenario that 
can't be denied as being heard, well, you grab the gong there and you withdraw, and that's how you win. Indeed, some time goes by, and later in Burnham and Tilly's ostensibly shared quarters, uh, Mom arrives. It's noted that Burnham doesn't know how she fits in this ship's family. Uh, she's reminded that duty and joy go hand in hand. Um, and indeed, when Tarina saw that trust was given, uh, it was decided that Burnham would get the data. After all, with that, Mom produces the Rogue One uh, data chip to say, here it is, <laughs> um, because it's it's TV. We need something physical, even though, uh, I don't know, we live in a world currently of cloud storage, but here's the physical prop thing that later on can also be held up uh, in the Tilly scene. Uh, Pete, there is also the somewhat cloying line that Tarina wondered how much of the man Spock became was because of Burnham. Now, look, I have no animosity towards Discovery. I think last season was fantastic uh, in a variety of ways, including the secret history of Spock and Sarek and Amanda and all of that. But does the episode need its muscle flex here to say, and don't forget the Spock that you've loved since... 1965 or 1966 or or whenever it is you first saw classic trek uh that's actually in retrospect uh in in retconning as a result of this awesome show i get that that's all true but i just don't know that the flex is needed here i think again within the characterization of the story she was the older sister we have flashed back to see the the words of wisdom i i did not mind it what I kind of minded the most in this scene was mom and daughter will do sideways hug on a cot because camera. Well, at least Pete, I have good news. Mom and daughter, uh, that bond kept, you know, kept apart low these many years for them and near a thousand years in the actual timeline. Surely mom is going to join the show. Oh, Actually, mom's not going to stay since Burnham isn't a lost cause anymore. And because the co-op Malat only stays with lost causes, uh, there's your explanation for why uh, this recurring or this guest actress isn't even going to recur. She just might guest again at some point in the future. My favorite line here, you always know where to find me. She can finally say it here. It's a sweet scene uh, to engineering Matt to another scene that uh had no right to be as as sweet and as fun as it is uh, where stamets has told everybody about tilly's offer from saru that she hasn't answered yet we get the echo of going to the future i said i with say yes why? Because they know her. They want to follow her. Um, Matt, we've talked off uh, Mike, and I think it's fair to say, and it works, that Bayer is essentially a version of Tilly, and who better to write this here? It, it works. Here's you know a super fan of Star Trek who got into writing Voyager novels and now is a fan voice in two writers rooms. In addition to at one point, not still quite clear if that's the case, 
kind of being the major domo of the publishing arm of the the things that oh and you want the the gabrielle burnham years apart story well let me tell you where you can read that in a novel i would agree that i think um i don't know if the origin of tilly was kirsten buyer but kirsten buyer having been around in the writing room you know in a very very early phase um i think that the the analogy is an apt one and just as i think it's near impossible that tilly would make the jump to first officer in the way that's been presented so too i think it's near impossible that this well-regarded novelist would be at the genesis of not one but two modern star trek shows uh and to to you know be so vaulted i won't say vaulting ambition because that that makes her sound arrogant and i don't think that's the case but to, to have rocketed as high as she did so insofar as again i still kind of have organization chart concerns about tilly's elevation if it's being done as a reflection of somebody who's had a similar journey in the last five years you know so be it um the the sweetness is perhaps of this scene is perhaps a bit less sweet to me uh i i can imagine how great it looked on the page the say yes say yes say yes i think maybe it filmed a bit more repetitively than it looked on the page uh perhaps looked on the page of a novel than a you know and that sort of thing but i'm not here to throw rocks pete um we have burnham capping off the scene uh, or pardon me i should back up a little bit there are playful requests i'd like a room change i'd like this i'd like that burnham would like help from the first Detmer officer has a space toilet matt we need to address it um she does her is, this is it the first the header is leaking space toilet definitive reference in all of star trek um definitive in dialogue it's in star wars now because of the mandalorian have the two shows in these two completely separate universes we currently podcast finally made uh excrement a thing (laughs) uh in dialogue which is the, the which is the the the, the platinum standard for Star Trek canon. Yes. Semi-canonical is the existence of the the head, the toilet uh, on the bridge uh, of the Enterprise D, um, as well as one off of uh, Picard's um, food synthesizer. Uh, there, there was a one in there. Again, semi-canonically, because it wasn't shown or said on screen, it's not the highest high. But Pete... You go searching on the uh, the Star Trek The Next Generation interactive technical manual, which was on CD-ROM, which, by the way, was a ton of fun because what they did is they put, um, not 3D cameras, but they put 360-degree cameras in the sets, and then you could click from spot to spot and drag around on your own and see all these details and whatnot. Um, so, Pete, in the future, it is still okay uh, even if you're number one, it still is okay to make the number one or the number two. Wow. That's right. Strangest we just spent time on the podcast thinking ever. about bathrooms. <laughs> um, yeah. So all these playful grievances and requests ultimately leading to Burnham coming back in with the Rogue One data, data tape that she got from mom. Um, and that I love the line here too, that, uh, Tilly doesn't need Burnham's blessing. 
that she wants Tilly to lead her because she's not going to leave. She'll be there for the duration of the show. Thank goodness. Cross that theory off, at least for now. Um, And her first act as acting uh, first officer is to command Commander Burnham to take the stolen data tape to the science lab to figure out the cause of the burn and rebuild the Federation. Oh, but yes, we still share a room because Pete was right. Yes, technically they still share a room. Um, Pete, I won't complain that the task given to Burnham, you know, uh, find all the answers, rebuild the Federation, that that's quite an order. And I also won't complain about the fact that maybe Tilly should tell Saru that she's accepting the job. It's all in the spirit of where we're headed. Uh, maybe my slight, I'm not going to mention it, mentioning, uh, again, I think that's another example of the show is kind of things are because it says it will right now. Um, but ultimately, um, we have Tarina talking to Saru again, thanking him for everything. Uh, this experience has been different than she expected. Hey, that's a Vulcan compliment, you know. Um, this is a complex situation, but Saru would like to talk more with her. Uh, she she will allow that in time. Pete, again, my fanfic heart inflamed here with the possibility of Saru, Tarina, at the very least connections, if not romance uh, in the future, Pete, in an increasingly stuffed future with less and less episodes for this season. But can you take us to the final scene of this episode? Which a uh, ship is stuffed into the shuttle bay? Of course I can. Uh, As Grudge looks on here um, out the back of the Uh, Discovery Shuttle Bay. Um, Burnham comes to tell Book, because they were together at the beginning of the episode, Matt, a book end, perhaps, uh, that she's gotten the data tape from Jin Erso and the rest of the Rebels from um, the, uh, the Imperial Research Facility at Scarif, and that she's not leaving that she belongs there with the crew. True believer, right? Book doesn't know what this means for him because that will be decided in future episodes. Uh, There's a languishing shot of Grudge, who I still pretend holds greater significance, but the acknowledgement here by a book and vice versa that uh, Burnham feels like home before the camera pulls out of the episode. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. Is that the security system on Navarre that is threatening us? The very notion that Vulcan was not a uh, member world of the Federation is, is jarring. And that we've gone to this point in the season before learning that, you know, the moment you and I were talking about an episode unconfirmed title unification three, all we could think of, you know, the Romulan situation, but that Vulcan broke away. Um, And obviously to, to rename the world 
you know, we talked about the significance of, of the name before. Um, and there still seems to be hinting by Tarina that there's more beneath the surface, that perhaps it is the Federation, the Starfleet, and, you know, given what we've seen of yet unnamed David Cronenberg glasses character and Georgiou and resuming that storyline in our next episode, um, that, that there's cause for suspicion. Um, so it might be the Federation, it might be Starfleet, that there's a greater element of antagonism, but just that Navarre is not a member, I think, draws that attention. Yeah, and I think even in an episode where I was uh, a bit strict with, uh, w- with my appreciation of some of the aspects, it makes complete sense that um, that the Vulcans on the now named Navarre, of course, they would be uh, least sentimental when it came to Federation membership and whatnot. And of course, they would be the most practical within the moment of saying not only do they feel that they were forced to uh, to beset this calamity on the galaxy, but that you know, regardless of if, if mistakes were made or that sort of thing. Uh, for the present foreseeable future to be part of the Federation is not uh, a benefit or a bonus. Uh, so, of course, the Vulcans would be the first, maybe not you know, literally the first ones, but of course they would be happy to leave as things uh, disintegrated. So it certainly is all kind of in line with the Vulcan people as we know them. As to Pete is Vakir, who, again, kudos to the actor that just really does nail that, you know... I, I, as I said before, with Vulcans, it's not that they're without emotion. It's that the emotions are very, you know, the volume is turned down all the way. So the little bit of sass that he gives is showing great insult and great indignation that he's being put through this uh, procedural hearing that uh, that uh, he doesn't want to be a part of. Yeah, and to do this as a young performer here, Emmanuel Cabongo, to carry across that idea the irony of being the the young person but a vulcan purist you know we've had some vulcan extremity in the last couple series but with enterprise obviously the um you know the prequel but with discovery with the the logic extremists that Sarek dealt with that, that tried to kill him um and here for uh, Burnham, for uh, Gabrielle, by proxy, to confront that as the opposition, the greatest opposition in the Tikalan Ket, uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think to have Gabrielle, to have Mom um, use the way she is, on the one hand, you know, I stand by my my gentle criticism earlier that it's kind of convenient, this tic-tac-toe of she showed up and then eventually ended up not just saved by the Qualat Malat, but also a member of them and whatnot. But I think it is worth keeping in mind in the, in the argument of fairness that, you know, after she left uh, in the Red Angel suit, there's there's been all this life experienced by Burnham. Like there's a mother daughter connection there, but it is not a normal one. It is a frayed one. Um, and, and there is that distance built in that, that, 
the 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 present day Michael Burnham is not the daughter that Gabrielle knew. So I think that in that space, even though I'm kind of grudgingly uh, not not thrilled by the way Mom is used as a character, I think it does ultimately make sense. It does, and again, within the sense that she would reappear to have it just be this loving reunion that you've got to have the conflict within drama and for her to present it in such a way. Yeah. Is it a little over the top that it would happen in the midst of this trial? Yes. Speaks with the Kuat Malat training and characterization that would happen there and ultimately rounds them into a greater appreciation of one another. Pete, speaking of appreciation, our greatest thanks to those who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, keeping us fully listener supported, especially this time of year as some of those, uh, some of those annual bills come on in. Yes. And like I said, uh, at the start of the show here, we're going to be giving you our thoughts on the Lego star Wars holiday special, uh, which is more canonical than the holiday special. <laughs> And uh, definitely the better of the two. So an early present there, Matt, for all the gifts that our patrons bestow upon us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Let's set our long range sensors towards some theories. Pete, this episode marks the, the, the passing of the halfway point for the season so uh, you have you have mildly spoiled for me that we're going to get more Giorgio and Kovic. That's the technically unnamed. No, uh, I didn't say him. I, I said Giorgio. I did not say him. Uh, you did suggest that that, that storyline would continue. But oh, I, I suggested guess... that something they did a couple episodes ago would come back. Uh, okay. Oh, fair enough. Kander, fair enough. The defense rests. <laughs> You're going to get a phaser um, bath later on. <laughs> um. So again, kind of with six episodes left, I feel I feel it's good news that we have so much story that the these episodes can explore. But I'm also kind of watching the clock going, surely you can't explore all of them. So let's start with this. Will we get substantial movement in the Giorgio Kovic arena this season? And will it indeed start to set up the potential, although as of yet un- uh, on uh, resumed Section 31 show in the 32nd century. I have been advised by my Chalcet to ask you to rephrase the question with information from this episode. <laughs> um, well, from this episode, that's difficult to say, seeing as how neither appears. But uh, certainly the way the show rotates in the Giorgio time, certainly one can expect more Giorgio before the end of the season. Again, uh, I need to defer to counsel and uh, plead the fifth. Uh, will, in these remaining six episodes, will we have Tarina return, or is that more of a season four thing? I, too, picked up on the potential smolder between her and Saru, and I, I really hope that that's going to be the case. I, I, what's, what's our ship name going to be here, Matt? Serena. Oh, that certainly sounds nice. I'd go for that. Absolutely. Or Taru. T- T- Tarina Roo. 
Serena sounds Serena, sounds fine to me. Go with Serena. Uh, will we in the next six, six episodes get a grudge queen, grudge uh, shapeshifter, grudge more than just an eighteen pound cat reveal? I think uh, she's as heavy as fifty. I think I remember hearing it was that hefty. Um, I I just continue to notice. It's one thing for the camera to love uh, an actor here or a performer. Um, It seems intentional from a story standpoint. There's something more going on there. So I have to imagine, you know, it's not just, oh, hey, a character has a cat. Yeah, it's been... It's been pondered upon enough times that it sticks out. Just like, quite frankly, uh, we both made mention last week of, oh, look, Tilly is in engineering, giving orders to people. And, you know, I, that that in retrospect clearly was a, a partial setup for this week. Um, Pete, if we find the definitive source of the burn and the solution of the burn before the end of this season, which I think we can do in six episodes. So if we're able to get that reset, um, do you think that the healing of the Federation will come with a time jump, not through a wormhole, but like a one year later or something like that? Do we see an improved Federation um, quickly as a result of the efforts of our heroes this season? I hesitate only because we've had maybe the biggest time jump in all of filmed TV. I can't think of a bigger time jump 930 years later and not in a throwaway type of manner. So I hesitate from that standpoint because I think it's diminished by effect. I'm not saying what you're proposing can't or shouldn't happen. But to my mind, you know, this season ends with, and we solve the burn, hopeful ending, and next season picks up. The ship's been redone, so what's another way to to show further integration, new uniforms? I'm telling you, I think they could take a page from Battlestar Galactica and others, and all of a sudden it's, it's one year later, it's two years later, something like that, uh, you know. Stamets has a mustache. Uh, Saru somehow has sideburns. Saru has a mustache. Saru has a mustache. Tilly there you go. has a mustache. You give them uh, all mustaches. And I, I get Saru it. makes reference to his wife for the entire episode, <laughs> and you get to his quarters. Who and only has Tarina. one eye all of a sudden? <laughs> does does uh, but, Culber only have one eye? And the irony, get it, uh, being that he's the medical officer. Um, I don't know. I feel like this, I mean, the show, as we've said many times before, the show strives to reinvent itself. Um, I think that the solution for the burn and the solution for propulsion problems, I think that that is just about a six episode problems slash solution. And I, I, I would, I would not be surprised if the burn is exclusively a season three issue. And then there's a new problem for season four it was interesting to me and definitely struck me on the second viewing so 
the post-burn 100 years have been a really, I mean, imagine just enough that, you know, all these ships detonated almost, uh, you know, instantaneously. But then the number of turbulent things that have happened since. Navarre leaving the Federation uh, being one of them. So they've really been through a rough time. And yes, conflict drives fiction. But the idea that, you know, there'd be some crisis, that's where, you know, we, we come at a point of crisis into this season what with Discovery's story entering into a cloudy future, reuniting, reconnecting with the Federation. That's where I think the end of the season needs to be hopeful, hand off to next season. And, you know, look at each season two introducing its threat, you know, the Klingon War, the Red Angel mystery, okay? what happened to the Federation. Um, that's where I think the arbitrary nature of boom, two years later, you know, something going on, everybody with mustaches suddenly, you know, what, what happened? Why are people suddenly growing all these mustaches, male and female alike? <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be too much, could be too much. Uh, but he, uh, uh, I think there's a deleted scene from one of these episodes where reference is made that the last 120 years since the burn, it's almost felt as long as that Earth year of the 2020. <laughs> almost as long. You might not be wrong, Matt. Let's but let's talk about 19 for a second. You drew the COVID-19 SB19 uh, connection, which my brain didn't go there. My brain went to the SB. So I ask you here with absolute candor, Matt, is SB19 named for Spock's brain? Um, I really hope not. Um, Did it come from Spock's brain? Within the world of Star Trek, I, I, I'm going to say almost certainly no. However, if that was the writing room, beginning point like oh we just need a thing that's always going to be a mystery it doesn't need to be something in vulcan we don't need an extensive history to it we're just gonna throw throw down something that sounds uh kind of you know like the coded program the coded you know plans whatever it is and you want to you start with spock's brain yuck yuck and it becomes sb and that's what's in the final episode that i like they want to i mean they want to protect that is, Shira is concerned that they could resume SB19. We have the spore drive. We've talked about theories of, you know, integrating that throughout Starfleet. But if there are concerns, now there's this other data, hence their need to protect it, that could lead to this other form of Propulsion, propulsion. I guess that's why they didn't call it SG, Matt, because it's almost like a Stargate. Um, well, and I think that, look, we have one of two choices with the SB19 data. Either it caused the burn or it did not. And I think I know since series lead Sonika Martin-Green is playing the main character who's saying, no, it's not from SB19. It just looked that way. SMG19? Uh, 
<laughs> oh, there you go. There then is your other option for the solution to the burn. Maybe SB19 almost had that that propulsion um, system figured out. Then there was this incorrect conclusion that it caused a catastrophe in the galaxy, the likes of which has never been seen. But once you can say, no, it wasn't you guys. In fact, the evil whoever's, they're the ones that made it look like it was, oh, you actually just need like three more months of uh, testing and whatnot. And then everybody can have the Stargate technology and we instantly get the communication there. We're going to go from Federation world to Federation world and say, here you go. Here's the open source plans. Go build it. We know it doesn't explode the galaxy. Um, Again, that's your... Insofar as I think the show wants to spend this season settling into the 32nd century and into the future of the show, uh, fine, take a season to do it. But I would be shocked if we, you know, I would be shocked if season four does not have us in a very stable, modern, modern to them, uh, federation where things work again um, and, and where it's kind of that, that new installation of the Star Trek future. Speaking of things working, Matt, this idea of personal transporters, comm badges, you know, the Vulcans come in in mid-walk onto the transporter pad, not through the transporters in the transporter room. Um, uh, Burnham transports from the shuttle bay into Book's ship. Uh, do we, will we have no more ramps? Will we have no more turbo lifts? I mean, it, it, it's a real question. They're just going to go anywhere at any time. We've seen emergency transports, um, emergency transporter use, site-to-site transporter use, but now personal transporter use. I mean, it's kind of a game changer. Your your walk and talk could be like, boosh, you could we could have the first ever walking beam <laughs> um i think that the the um vulcan quorum vulcan romulan quorum arriving kind of mid-walk i think i think that within the dramatic presentation that was meant to kind of make them a bit more uh on the hustle a bit more kind of controlling of the room and and that sort of that sort of thing i think that if you're wondering why the quorum did it within the story probably for the same reasons like all right these jerks have used a uh a a legal an ancient legal asterisk to call for this we're going to show up huffing and puffing even though it's not going to be with huffing and puffing regardless of whether we show our emotions or not where you're at on the romulan vulcan scale there um as to your specific concern how about this pete let's meet halfway from what you're arguing which is kind of a uh, a Wally, you know, um, a Wally future where people don't move at all. Um, and then the world where we live in, where there's not instant transporting, uh, maybe they just know, hey, it's good to get a certain number of steps in. And there are certain niceties like going for a tour or fine, not going for a tour, but having that face to face private conversation. Some of those things are real things. So to walk from spot to spot, um, is perhaps a uh, a social nicety as well as you know basic health benefit versus just I'm not going to get out of my chair, transport my chair wherever I go, <laughs> and then I'm going to grow a mustache one year later. Um, 
there's numerous issues that Tarina alluded to. It was SB19 that was the final blow. We know that there is unrest within Navarre. Naraj talks about his province. Um, there are insurgencies in the Romulo Balkan region uh, that Shira was responsible for. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of conflict. This is not a Vulcan we ever thought we'd see. Um, I would agree. And I think that some of the, uh, some of the social planet wide frictions are logical. Uh, and we get, we obviously get them spilled out, um, spelled out rather in, in fast fashion, but clear fashion, uh, during the, the courtroom drama. That said, I would propose that some of the some of the unmentioned reasons why uh, Navarre was close to leaving the Federation before the Star that broke the camel's back with SB19, uh, I would argue that that is kind of story baloney in that I think that here's the discussion in the writing room. Great, they left because of SB19, but as soon as we reveal in the next six episodes that everything's cool with SB19, does that mean that now uh, Vulcan immediately just comes back because that was the one reason they left? No, we need more than one reason. What are those reasons? I don't know, stuff? Um, so yes, there are these issues going on on the planet. I don't buy it as, oh man, there's a faction in the uh, Romulo-Vulcan community that's leading to unrest or protesting or or whatever it might be. Uh, that's a reason to leave the Federation. That doesn't quite make sense. I think they're they're hinting at other things. But again, in my in my gentle chastisement of this episode, the issues are so great that they were there that they had to leave. But what are those issues? Uh, we're not really going to address that. Has Discovery written Picard into a corner? The Romulans will eventually uh, reset, reintegrate, reintegrate, reunify with the Vulcans or is it more so just a direction? Oh, I think it's more of a direction. I mean, you figure in the Picard series, we are what about 18 years after, uh, 15 years, something like that. Uh, after the destruction of the, uh, the Romulan homeworld and therefore the end of the Romulan empire and therefore the creation of the Romulan, uh, Republic which is still trying to sort out how secretive versus free that it is. So I could, I could foresee that in this relatively short amount of time between um, Star Trek 09 and the Picard series, you know, they're just starting to figure out how to be like uh, most of the other neighbors in the alpha and beta quadrant in terms of something approaching uh, a, a functioning open society with a working democracy. Uh, so if you want to say it still is going to take, much time, much more time beyond that for them to then be good neighbors in the galaxy, and then further centuries for them to say, you know what, we we are a people without a home. We've been wandering low these many centuries. Let's come back to to home. Let's come back to the the planet Vulcan and figure out what that's going to be like. I mean, I feel like you're talking hundreds and hundreds of and hundreds of years before that process starts. And then if you still are having problems four hundred years later, I think that that's understandable as well. Did they remove dramatic tension, though, in terms of that? 
Well, no, they've replaced the omnipresent threat of uh, the Romulans, which, you know, a threat in classic Trek, uh, not really in the classic Trek movies, but, you know, they show up a little bit. Um, they didn't have a, you know, the Ferengi threat didn't quite pan out the way they wanted to in Next Generation. So what do they do at the end of the first season? Romulans are back, baby. And they're kind of in the background there as the, as always bad. You know, there's never any like, well, the Cardassians, we really like Gul Dukat, even though he's bad. And occasionally, you know, Gul Dukat might have a daughter with uh, the Bajorans. So there's a little bit of sympathy there. Or it's not, they're not always, always bad. Um, uh, they're going to help out. The Romans are going to help out with the uh, the um, cloaking device for the Defiant, and there's always going to be a Romulan. Ah, uh, we got bored of having a Romulan officer there to press go on it. Nope. Um, but they're always bad. What's that been replaced by? That's been replaced by the uh, the Andorian Orion Syndicate, which is similarly all the way over there, the way the Vulcans were. You know, or pardon me, the way the Romulans were. You know, there's not a Romulan threat. Uh, on mars it's all the way off over there at the borders same thing with the uh andorian orion uh, alliance it's all the way over there it's not really with where the federation is right now with its 38 or so worlds so tarina talked about how it was a dilithium shortage first which we've already heard before and then the burn happened i think with everything that we know now it's pointing at a culprit and not more so some kind of ecological disaster. I would agree. And I think that, again, I don't mean to overly hit the point here, but we're at a point in the season where solving the burn by the end of the season and solving the propulsion issue, that could be a fine and dandy uh, route for the next six episodes to take as other things are woven into in and out. Uh, However, what is set up for season four? Maybe season four is the new Federation versus the, you know, who has been revealed to be the bad guys. I will back off the theory a little bit that the remnants of section 31 did it. Uh, but I would agree with you, Pete, that we already have the system stretched and the burn being a tipping point that then, you know, vastly destabilized, two fourths two quadrants of the of of the galaxy it feels like it's a it feels like it's a person it's a group it's it's an act that was on purpose not just nature reacting to too much dilithium use or that sort of thing and lastly i gotta hold your feet to the fire here so the other thing i was right about that not that they share quarters still, but that Tilly would be promoted to number one. Will she become not acting, but regular first officer? I think that that probably is going to be the case. I think that there's some, again, I still kind of, I'm overly clinging to, you know, number of pips as a reason not to do it, which I get dramatically is not a good excuse. Just as Saru was acting captain at the end of the first season, but didn't become captain captain until the third season, I think you could have a similar path for Tilly. And I think that you could probably get interesting, dramatic um, fruit from whether it's this season or next season, whatever it might be. You know, this particular mission, Vance says, I got to keep Tilly here because of whatever, or because we're borrowing the 
Romulo, Vulcan, uh, this, that, the other, they're going to install a number one temporarily for the next three episodes or, you know, things of that sort where it could be, oh, but I'm supposed to, oh, but I can't. I think that there's lots of dramatic room there to have her position be tenuous and then to, like I said, to put other people in and out of that spot as the story requires. Okay. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequency. Hailing Frequency's open, sir. Pete, in an episode that got a ton of feedback, we start with our poll. One Vulcan ear, eh, can't hear you, got 6.8%. Two ears, talk, talk, no action, uh, got 4.5%. Three Vulcan ears got peace for pointed ears. Uh, that was peace for pointed ears. That was 22.7%. And then four Vulcan ears, unify my heart, got 65.9%. Uh, some responses and replies on Twitter there. JT Atkins, is at JTA is me, says, I'm having difficulty week after week inventing new creative ways to say this is awesome, but this is awesome. And what beautiful, motivated Spock tie-ins and Burnham Mama moments. As an aside, got a chuckle out of the midst of all the drama when Michael uh, implored the Navarans, this is not the way, so say we all, Michael, may the force be with you. Uh, we also heard from James, it's at Big Killin, uh, who says, 20 years, a new high for me. See you on Facebook. Pete, I hope James reached out to you on Facebook. Absolutely. Uh, we heard from Andre Yeager, that's at Dr. Pole in 1983. Great episode. I knew it was going to be Tilly. So happy for her. It was nice seeing Mom again. Her and Burnham work so well together. Lots of emotion in this one. Can't wait for next week. Um, we heard uh, from Brett Desmo Williams, that's at BW Desmo on Twitter. Uh, the same fans complaining about the Pew Pew explosions last week or whining about all the talking this week. This episode was peak Trek and revealed Burnham's character to a level many have been waiting for. Absolute candor was perfect. Uh, we also heard from Jackie Wolf, that's at Jackie Wolf on Twitter. Jackie with an I, Wolf with an E. I'm not a crier, says the girl who cries at the end of Wrath of Khan every time. But I discovered that there was some sort of salty discharge coming out of my eyes during the say yes scene. Um, we heard from Boldly Going Wherever, uh, that's at K-C-L-Y-L-E-1. Uh, great episode, I'm a sucker for the homages, USS Yelchin, and references, TNG Nimitz. Putting Discovery in the future makes every other show part of the past. Makes for a lot of possibilities. Tilly is number one. Saru's reasoning makes some sense, but I'm surprised the crew was so okay with it. Nice to see Mama Burnham. No Linus, Giorgio, Culver, or Reno. Boo! Finally some progress with the burn. Looking forward to next week. Um, Pete, I'll just comment and say, I agree that a 21st century crew would be jealous of Tilly. I think it is... It is peak Gene's Trek to say that people are happy for e that in the future people are happy for each other, even if that means, you know, oh, well, could have had a shot or, you know, we, we went through the whole Canadian crew last week and, and their odds and whatnot. But I think it's very Gene's Trek to say, I am happy for you, Tilly. Good for you. Oh, completely. Along with all the ideals there. Uh, we heard from Rmore79 uh, on Twitter. That's Rmore6179. Uh, Pete, I don't think it's Ron Moore, by the way. Um, <laughs> but uh, Rmore says, one of the best episodes of this season. I loved seeing both Spocks. Wonderful seeing Michael's mom again. Not too excited about Tilly being number one, but someone has to do it. 
Since Book's ship is still on Discovery, the ship, when will he leave and go off on his own? Well, it's a good question. Um, and uh, Armour also says, I also want to add that of all the Star Trek podcasts that I listen to, yours has been the best of all by far. You give a great description and analysis of the episodes while giving a fair critique when needed. I've been listening to you guys for a few years now. Thank you. That's really kind. Thank you. And uh, I think this episode completely encapsulates that idea. I really loved it. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it from a, a Ryerly side. And I think in Kirsten Beyer, you had the ideal storyteller to do this. And Matt's a curmudgeon bastard. <laughs> um, I, Pete, I am... I am the Vulcan in this episode. I'm saying <laughs> I see your use of multiple Spock actors as an emotional appeal to hide the fact <laughs> that your argument, your multiple arguments in this episode are not logical. You know, I'm, I'm talking Tilly. I'm talking mom leaving. I'm talking the sharing of the SB19 data, but, but oh well. Pete, many thoughts here from Spiderham Lincoln. That's at TessLC139 on Twitter. This was a great episode. One of the best of the season all the way around. The Spock nostalgia was crucial to the storyline and beautiful in execution. I like how Discovery is making large and small connections. TOS, TNG, DS9, Troll History and Nog, Voyager with the J Starship, and Picard, uh, the Romulan Coat group. Quick takes. Navarre. I buy the 32nd century unification and look forward to more. Gabrielle Burnham. Necessary for story purposes to have her back, but it seemed all too convenient nonetheless. Acting First Officer Ensign Tilly. Again, convenient for story's sake, and I like the direction this character is going, but it still seemed contrived. There are plenty of other officers of higher rank who are probably more deserving career-wise, and I get that she's more of a more of a confidant to Saru rather than a full-on command presence, but I really like this. I love how supportive her crewmates are instead of being jealous or skeptical of Saru's decision. This speaks volume of how much a family this crew seems to be, after two and a half seasons, they seem more connected to each other sometimes than some of the other Trek crews who spent considerably more time together in the context of their own stories and adventures. Mist, Giorgio, Jet Reno, and Adira Tal. I like those characters a lot. Great episode. So, Pete, many thoughts there from Spider-Ham Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, you, you're going to get them all in those bigger episodes, not that this wasn't a big one, but the stakes a little bit more intimate. So you push pause on those stories. Like I said, Georgiou next week and just around the corner, I'm sure all those other ones until we get the big end of the season and Matt's mustache flash forward. Uh, we have one more tweet here from uh, Brett Desmo Williams, uh, who said, as an aside, why is the one rating, though, you know, I'll do whether it's Vulcaneers or whatever it might be, why are the one voters uh, never the ones that comment thoughtful critique of what they missed uh, the mark on? Uh, my reply was, I just suspect that there are people who look for the discovery hashtag and downvote and, and whatnot. And uh, Brett's response was, ha, this election is rigged. It's the worst <laughs> election. Everyone knows it. Many people tell. Great people, beautiful people, tell me it's rigged. Uh, so... I don't know, Pete. Next time, do I do a vote that doesn't... I know one week I just said, how great was this episode? And there were different options of, of its greatness as opposed to a one, two, three, four. But 
don't know, Pete, sometimes people vote the way they want to vote, even if it's a, uh, a silly vote. I think that's the beauty of democracy, Matt, and that you can have the results and, and have 30 plus uh, one votes thrown out. <laughs> Pete, what do you have there on Facebook? So James Killen had uh, referenced seeing us on the Facebook and, and boy does he, Matt. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Just finished watching Disco S3E7, Unification 3, and I'm blown away. The episode pulled together elements from TOS, TNG, and Picard and made me feel like they were all the same show. And let's face it, it's all Star Trek. The women on this show are amazing. When Kate Mulgrew remarked that women are inherently more interesting than men at the Trek the Vote panel, she wasn't lying. The third season of the show has given me two of my top five all-time Trek episodes, and none of them are in the first two seasons of Disco or Picard. The Burnhams and the president were giving me strong Stacey Abrams, Maxine Waters, and RBG vibes. If you are going to shove a mother and a daughter together across time and space, you have to deliver on the parenting dynamic, and they did. I was choking back tears. Sarek and Spock would have blushed. Tilly should have been such a hokey choice for number one but they made it work based on the strength of the cast. BTW, Owo's gold eye makeup was fire. The glances between Owo and Detmer could be its own show. Of course, Saru is unbelievable and may go down as the best Trek captain. He holds his own with admirals and heads of state alike. Michael Burnham seems to have settled in back on Discovery. Finally, leaving with Book would have set the Bechdel test to kill. I, I'm glad she's got her groove back in more ways than one. And it's nice to see how, uh, how be multidimensional, I guess, see her be multidimensional uh, while still growing. Hope everyone had a safe and healthy holiday with their families. He spelled it right, Matt, with the PH. Live long and prosper. One uh, out of those multitude of thoughts there, and, and indeed the Thanksgiving uh, hopes there. I guess we'll know for sure. T minus twelve days and counting. Um, but one one Star Trek thought that that James got going in my head is this: if we are going to be somewhat critical of Tilly's elevation within the story. Again, outside the story, I get it. She's a series lead, blah, blah, blah. Um, but if we're going to say, well, there's all these reasons why she shouldn't have, uh, as indeed I did, so too it should be fair to say, but this is Saru's decision. So, like, I'm a little finger waggy towards the decision, but I was not wagging any finger towards Saru, who ultimately is making it. And he's the one that has to pick the person who will best suit him as number one and and all of that so um so i thank james for getting that spark going in my head along with his uh, his thoughtful words robert t frost writes in hello matt and pete as much as i've been enjoying this season of discovery i've come to wonder if the show shouldn't be named star trek discovery the ongoing adventures of michael burnham to back up to the last episode scavengers for a moment 
I'm gobsmacked that Michael Burnham got off so lightly for her insubordination, AWOL, dereliction of duties, and disobeying orders. I'm pretty sure that any one of those offenses rise to the level of a court's martial. However, she only loses a position, that of first officer, not her rank, which is commander. I do realize that I'm letting my real-world sensibilities impede upon our sci-fi show, but her running off at such a critical time to satisfy a very personal mission to save Book, the black box was the story's get-out-of-jail-free card, had me yelling at the TV. Then this week's episode, we have Saru picking Ensign Tilly to be his first officer. In terms of the story and our belief in the values of Star Trek, I applauded the choice. I think it will be interesting and fun to see how Mary Wiseman plays first officer Ensign Tilly. They got to give her some rank. Adapting to her newly appointed duties and responsibilities and most certainly some failures. However, in terms of our real world, no, no, no. An ensign doesn't have the necessary experience to run a ship or lead a crew or the know-how to deal with politics of the greater organization. There was a joke that went around when I was in college ROTC, Army, that went like this. Question, what's the most dangerous thing in the Army? Answer, a second lieutenant with a map. And now Ensign Tilly has a map. Lastly, I really, really like the new comm badges with all-in-one convivence uh, they afford. I just wish that the show had made the rank pips easier to see. I don't know if it's the lighting, the camera, or mine old, uh, or mine old eyes. <laughs> Um, but I need something that uh, pops out more. Oh, second to last, a three-week refit of Discovery has to be the fastest refit ever. I know that we have had programmable uh, matter now, but damn. I was also surprised at the crew's reaction to the bridge, like they had just seen it for the first time. What were they doing the last three weeks during the refit? Some intense uh, physiotherapy and a crash course in history, perhaps? Till next week, your friend, Bob. Thank you for those words there, Bob. Couple of thoughts. First of all, I would buy that for three weeks they were told, we're not going anywhere. Um, here's your modified duty schedule. Um, first of all, you've been through a lot, so everybody's going to get you know, instead of working five day weeks, everybody's going to work four day weeks or four, three and a half day weeks, you know, whatever it is, you have some time for R and R second of all, instead of going to your, uh, normal bridge location. Yes, you are going to have history of the galaxy lessons, uh, and, and things of that sort. You're going to have the mental debrief. I think all of that is probably correct. And if you're going to do the sci-fi emphasis on the phi uh you know programmable matter how fast does it take to put programmable matter in i don't know you want to say three weeks to me that's that's as acceptable as you know we, we have a magic box that when you stand in it and we shine lights you then show up somewhere else like it's as equally ridiculous and plausible uh in that combination there as for uh bob's 
fought on on rank and tilly as the first officer he has sparked a thought in me just as james did earlier what if the answer is right in front of us we're all saying i get it for story reasons but organizationally it doesn't make sense pete what if she is not going to be the final um first officer i know we discussed it a bit but maybe that solution is the one that's right in front of us maybe it's most obvious that it will merely be concluded that she's now going to go back as as a lieutenant or whatever it might be and for right now they're not doing it because they don't want to introduce the exciting new character but it could be for season four you get name who's going to be you know whoever it is who's your pick you know i know we had gone through um actors to be uh osira the head of the uh the orion alliance you know do you say oh my goodness oscar winner and former series lead of true blood anna paquin joins the show as the brand new first officer for season four commander such and such oh man well instantly right there you have some tension between her and tilly maybe and she's got to fit into the new crew who's a fan or the old crew who's a family and all of that um Again, Bob, maybe maybe the show agrees that this is not a good long-term fit and they're just setting that up in the future. Well, the attractive story path forward is is seeing Tilly struggle in the role and and grow into it, not necessarily retreat or have it taken from her. Um, so I, I'd be wary of the signal that that sends. Um and then, you know, where I thought you were going to go with your commentary is, you know, how about somebody who knows the landscape right now who we've already met in like a Lieutenant Willa? Um, you know, I, I could see arguments on both sides. I'm really going to hope that they'll allow Tilly to fail in the role. Like, you know, you know, she's going to beat herself up the first time she recommends uh, you know, a course of action that, you know, somebody suffers through, you know, that that's going to be something that's going to mar her and how she, you know, develops the scar tissue to move past that so that she can eventually become the captain in this universe that doesn't stab people in the back after she's, you know, had sleepy time with them. Pete, let's now move to the email inbox where we heard from Derg, who says as follows, Hello, Matt and Pete. In terms of the A and B stories division in most Trek episodes, this one had a five-star A story, but the episode missed being a home run because of an absurd development in the B story. I'm a Tilly fan, but her promotion to number one makes no sense. I'm sorry. There are probably five or six crew members on the bridge who not only hold a higher rank than Tilly, lieutenant, commander, but also are more qualified just by virtue of being on the bridge a lot longer every day. Look, I love Tilly, as I said above, and I will root for her regardless. But this is the type of storytelling that also undermines Saru because it makes uh, it makes him look bad for making an emotional decision rather than a cogent one. This season has done a wonderful job portraying Saru as every bit deserving of the captain's chair he occupies. And this absurd appointment on his part just takes away some of that. Regardless of the group hug at the end and her comrade's blessing, she is simply not qualified yet to be number one, it pains me to say. With that out of the way, the rest of the episode, in other words, the A story, is simply top-notch. One of the best courtroom dramas in all of Trek that included 
great character growth, enthralling philosophical debates, eye-opening self-discovery, and vintage Trek contemplating between Saru and the Vulcan president, as well as Michael and her mother. I was completely glued to the screen, and the dialogues were written with great detail to attention. It kept me captivating. The icing on the cake was Spock's little speech from Unification 2. It brought a fitting closure to parts 1 and 2 from the TNG era. Thank you both, and look forward to hearing your commentary on the podcast. Pete, some strong words there from Dirk the Markalian. Yeah, the thing that struck me, Michelle Paradise talked about how you know, they wanted to have this very original series type of, uh, you know, plot with this uh, to Colin Kett. And I, I think it, it really worked. Um, you, you think to Next Generation with Measure of a Man and uh, do I just scream it, Matt, drumhead at this point? <laughs> um you know, but th- there's a place in in Trek for the courtroom drama. It, it's been established. And to return to it here with the scientific bent with the Vulcans. Um, and when you think about it, too, it didn't swallow up the balance of the show. It's really a, you know, second into third act, if we're going to look at a traditional three act. Um, you know, it's harder with the, with the five act of, of TV. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it, it really worked. Well, Pete, in this courtroom drama, I say all rise for somebody who is well qualified to be a first officer, a captain, a judge, and an admiral. I speak, of course, of Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 7. Headline, Michael Burnham is coming. Most Star Trek fans are somewhat nostalgic, so for those, this was a very nice episode. Putting in Leonard Nimoy, getting a connection to... The Picard series with the Quad Malat. I recognize the Falcon Fakir, who I know actually as Moses Page from Frankie Drake Mysteries. Very nice female driven Canadian 20s detective series. A bit Murdoch Mysteries like series with Lauren Lee Smith in the lead role, and that's one of my favorite Canadian actresses. And President Tarina from Navarre, who is played by Tara Rosling, who I know from the YouTube original series Impulse, which I really advise to have a look at. Very interesting sci-fi-like series, or actually more genre-like series. And you just can watch it on YouTube. Seeing Burnham's mother back went me a little bit too fast. On the other hand, it was just the other way around as you would expect. You would expect that Michael Burnham was looking for her mother and found her mother some way on a kind of quest, taking several episodes. And now mother just walked in. Sometimes it's good to do it in a different way than everybody expects. I got used to the hook up between Book and Michael in the meanwhile. 
what also was very unexpected, but you could anticipate it a little bit that Tilly would become number one, but still, as an ensign, uh, a bit too much. Very nice, of course, that the whole crew is behind her and support that, but still, feels a bit unreal. But I already thought that when I thought about the possibility it could be Tilly. So now it just happens. We will see what it will bring us. Not unexpected, of course, is that Michael will stay under discovery. Well, perhaps story-wise it would or could be nice that she wouldn't. But on the other hand, then we have no interaction or not that much between her and the rest of the crew. And that would be bad, I think, for the series. Or perhaps even impossible for the series. So, in conclusion, they went towards a certain path, but they didn't follow up on that path. And, well, would have been perhaps a nicer idea to let Michael Burnham become a rogue captain, and everybody follows this rogue captain, including Saru. That would be something different. More in a way like following Captain Lorca, although the crew didn't know he was a Terran. That was all for now. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Just say how impressed I am with Fred. Like the amount of Canadian television and even into YouTube television that this guy goes, where Fantastic Geek don't even dare to tread. Yeah, it's impressive. I I definitely will have to keep an eye out. Well, I have an eye out. Fred did say Impulse is there on YouTube, waiting waiting to be watched. So. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps at some point in the near future, check, uh, I'll check that out. Sounds like it's good stuff. If it has the Fred seal of approval, the mom stuff, uh, I, I get it, but you know, I think I've said enough throughout the body of our podcast today that, you know, it was earned. And as much as, you know, my heart was, Hey, please be Denise Crosby. It makes sense to bring mom in it's not as if they hint, they'd hinted that it uh wouldn't happen um i'm glad that they didn't make mom the source of the burn lastly fred wondering if perhaps a version of the show maybe not prior to this or maybe not after this episode but just this idea of maybe burnham leading a rogue fleet it does beg the question pete we've seen burnham burnham has now been demoted from first officer the same number of times that kirk was a captain so is there a third act for burnham does she come back uh you know with as first officer as a captain in the future fleet admiral herself one day you know your thoughts i don't think there can be a third strike i'll put it that way um i don't know i mean have you you haven't had a lead who hasn't become captain so does it set itself apart in that very nature? It does. You know, we continue to feel like only because they've told us that, you know, Tilly's heading towards Captain. I don't know that that has to be of the discovery. Um, you know, does the Voyager J need a Captain at the end of the series? And, you know, Tilly goes off on her adventures there and then come back to direct. We'll, we'll have to see. And then, you know, we felt like Saru had earned it with his time and he's gotten it. 
I, I don't know that you necessarily have to make Burnham a captain. Can she settle into this idea? You know, she says she's with the crew and she's here for the duration. And that's, you know, not just the character speaking, that's the actress as well. Um, can you be the, the reliable, you know, third in command for, for the duration story's going to tell us. Indeed, Pete, and still plenty of road ahead for Star Trek Discovery Season 3. How can people be in touch with you to talk about the show? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-11,704 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the P, with the H, with the one word like it today. If you are here for the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we will be back tomorrow talking Mandalorian episode 205. That's your chapter 13. Uh, however, if you're here for Star Trek and Star Trek alone, we'll be back, of course, next Saturday, the first Saturday in December, as we enter the final month of 2020 to talk more Star Trek Discovery. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. I'm here for the duration. Mm-hmm.